You were uh, pretty close to being a neighbor of uh, D. Rowe in your time. About a mile away from being a neighbor yeah, for decades. That's pretty close. Then again, you know, the way, the way that D. Rowe was, that anybody who met him like once thinks that D is the friend for life, because that's the way D was. He sure was. He would uh, find a way to take a genuine personal interest in just countless thousands of people, from athletes to coaches, team managers, media folks like us, and he uh, made you feel like you're part of the family. Do you have a recollection of the first time or the first maybe season that you remember, A, seeing D-Rill? You know, he was a coach from 69 to 77, but maybe a personal interaction when you first got to know D-Rill? Well, as a neighbor, I was an acquaintance of his children. His uh, daughters were friendly with my sisters, and so I would run into D-Rill at things like an E.O. Smith winter student concert or Lions Club barbecue at Holiday Hill. You know, it was one of those things where he was, uh, you know, part of the community in a social circle completely apart from UConn athletics. And he, he would ask you, what are you doing these games for, John? And then, yeah, you're a, you're a basketball junkie like me. I think because of your relation with D. Rowe and to a degree my relation with D. Rowe, there will probably be significant memorial ceremonies to D before the next women's game at Gample, which oh, is yeah. Saturday against Villanova, and the next men's game, which is Monday against St. John's. Both teams play road games, the men tonight and the women on Wednesday. So your charge, JT, will be to read the script they prepare and not become a vegetable. Not that's going to be tough, man. I've I've had some. I've challenged myself with that this morning a couple of times. I've had a, this has been a you know this has been a twelve hanky morning for me so far talking about this on the air. But I have to. I want to. But it's tough sometimes. Yeah, that moment of silence is going to be uh, pin drop time. That's going to be tough. You know, I, I'm going to really miss him because just the basketball circles and you'd run him, run into him at Final Fours and. But he was just a regular. He'd show up at the baseball games in the press box and shoot the breeze with everybody. He'd come by the soccer games. I'd be busy on the air, but he'd you know tap you on the shoulder and say hi and talk to you at halftime. And uh, you talk about a fixture. D. Rowe was uh, he was the man up at UConn. He'd he'd go to games and then he'd see uh, across the way a Dick Vitale or a, a Bill Raftery or of uh, Jim Valvano even who was an assistant coach and. It didn't matter how large the uh, celebrity of, of the announcers were or a visiting coach or athletic director. D. Rode would be right in there talking to him like old pals. And you'd see D. in his last years and, you know, upper 80s, and then he was 91. What it turned 92 next week? You never looked at him and said, geez, there's a 91-year-old guy. You kind of thought that D. Rowe would live forever. And I wish he would, but you know what? It, it was time, and uh, he he's in the Huskies of honor. I mean, he had one really great year. And to be honest, his first year was really good, too. They were 5-19 and 19 the year before, and five games into his first year, they'd won five games already, 5-0. and 0. Yeah, those 70s teams, you know, they, as they call them, the, the turbulent 60s, it really was early 70s when uh, UConn in particular was racially integrating the program. It was the Vietnam era, and they're burning down the ROTC building next door, and players like Cal Chapman, Al Weston, uh, Earl Wilson, Tony Hanson, Jimmy Foster were becoming uh, household names around Connecticut. But it was a, it was a switch, as UConn was uh, not entirely, but pretty lily white up until D. Rowe became coach. And one of his first players at UConn joins me right now, Doug Melody, to talk about his coach, 
his mentor and a guy that I've been seeing D-Row with several times during the course of 2020. Doug, good morning. You kind of knew this was coming, but it just you felt like, did it have to happen? Yeah, good morning, Wayne. Uh, thanks for thanks for having me. Um, did it have to happen? Uh, and it's like a parent's passing for me and for so many people. Um, you know, did it have to happen? It was time. You and I both kind of knew that uh, where he was at, but uh, never do you prepare for something like this and for a loss in our lives like like we're all experiencing right now. Flash me back to your first experience with D. Hey, Wayne, let me tell you, I've, I've been sharing a story with uh, actually my kids and a few others uh, in, in the past couple of days. Um, I was not recruited by D. I was recruited by Burke Carlson, and which really makes my relationship with D that much more special over the years because he did not recruit me and he inherited me along with everybody else that was in my class and, and older. Uh, and I recall my freshman year, Wayne, I'll tell you this real quickly, my freshman year when uh, I heard that uh, the coach who had recruited me was departing, um, that created concerns for me, and I wondered what my future was like at UConn. And I called my father uh, from East Hartford, which is a half hour away from the store's campus, and I said, can you come up? I'd like to talk to you. And um, my reason for calling him was to have him come up and talk to him about me transferring. And, you know, back then in the 60s, a long talk with, uh, with my father at that time was anything that lasted uh, a minute. And uh, if you remember the, the, the driveway around the jungle, you know how long that was? Around the jungle? The, I, uh, I, I used to live in the jungle, and I think where you're going is it was kind of steep. Yeah, just it was it was about a less than a quarter of a mile. I got in the car at the beginning of that uh, that arc, and by the time we got to the end of it, uh, maybe a less than a minute later, I was not transferring. I was staying at UConn, uh, and there was no there, there was no alternative. And I thank my father to this day, fifty years later, for him saying, "No, you're not transferring," because it began the relationship with Coach Rowe. That I've had for five decades. So, Doug Melody, you were involved in the five and nineteen season that Burr Carlson coached the year before D Rowe came, and then D Rowe comes, and you start off five and zero. Oh. You won as many games to start the season as the prior team did all year long. What was the D Rowe magic? What was the magic wand that he waved? What was the Kool Aid he was he was serving? Huh? Uh, that that was amazing. Um, I was a freshman, actually, uh, in that 5-19 and 19 year, so we'd play the prelims back then, right? Freshman teams would play the, uh, would be like the JV game. And Just to clarify what he's talking about, freshmen did not play varsity basketball back in that era. You had your own freshman team. Mm-hmm, yep. Uh, and so, you know, so we witnessed the losses uh, each night, and then when D came, um, it, you know, he, he started from scratch. I mean, Snake Taylor had not really been a, uh, a player the year before, right? And you, you know about Snake, and Snake was an integral part of that team. So he started all over and gave a lot of people new chances, new opportunities. And um, I think we all surprised ourselves. Perhaps he was surprised as well when we went up to UMass, for instance, and we were getting hammered at, at, in uh, the first half uh, with Julius Irving. 
and righted ourselves, found a way uh, to play good basketball. We ended up winning that game. Going away, I think it was 88-71. It was Julius Irving's worst ever home court loss, and that was all done in D. Rowe's first season. Yeah. When you know a whole lot more, a whole lot more than I do. I can't remember all this stuff. Well, I wrote a book about it, you know. There's a whole chapter on D. Rowe in the book, and one thing that we talked about early in the book that we wrote in 2004-2005 was that he, he was very active, or at least conscious, of the African-American community. And Bobby Taylor talked about that. He talked about how he lost his father at an early age, and here's this white guy, D. Rowe, who became a father figure for him. That was so typical of what D. could do to essentially integrate himself with their, his players' lives. We need more D. Rose in our world today because he would accept, uh, reach out, embrace every and any kind of human being, whether you knew him for 10 years or 10 minutes. Uh, and he was especially instrumental, Wayne, as you know, in uh, opening doors for people. Uh, at UConn, who previously <clears throat> had been denied those opportunities. So, absolutely, open the doors for people like Al Vaughn uh, from New Haven, uh, who came by way of Hill House, uh, Cal Chapman, oh gosh, there's so many, Earl Wilson, you, you know them, uh, and so on and so forth. So he was definitely a trailblazer in that sense. We got to turn the clock ahead in that first year when you lost four of your top eight players before the regular season finale at the Fieldhouse against Rhode Island, and a win is likely going to give you a tie for the conference championship with UMass. UMass had to uh, win their game the following day, but anyway, you'd lost four of your top eight players, and you've got one of the best teams in the league come to the Fieldhouse. Can you recap that story? And what D. Rowe's role in that was, the number one thing he did was, with no shot clock, he told you guys to take the air out of the basketball, and wow, did it work. <laughs> well, we knew that Rhode Island couldn't score if we had the ball. So that was the game plan. Um, but, you know, that's, that's been, that story's been retold countless times about uh, how that whole thing happened and, and how how much of a shock it was to all of us when the state police entered our locker room on a Thursday, uh, pulled coach out along with a couple of other people. And then he came in and informed us what was going on. So, uh, you know, in reality, Wayne, we didn't have a lot of time to process any of this. Um, and, and him especially. So, uh, what we had decided to do playing against a team that was so formidable, like Rhode Island, who had, two NBA players on that roster uh, eventually. So uh, we take the air out of the ball. And like you said, with no shot clock, again, you're going to know better than I would, but I think we may have scored our first points like eight minutes into the game or something like that. Um, and uh, it was a miracle. Well, yes, you did, but it was also 9-7 Rhode Island at halftime. That was a halftime score. That's how low-scoring and paced it was. And by the way, when UConn had possession, who had possession the most? Who was the guy that did all the dribbling in that game? I don't, I don't remember. That would be you. <laughs> <laughs> that was your job, just dribble outside on the perimeter. And as I remember it, because I was there, as I remember it, you guys would have basically a four-out one end, maybe a five-out, 
And then eventually Rhode Island would get sucked into the trap and they would come outside. And especially in the second half, as they get farther from the hoop, you'd get a guy like Ron Rabala who'd make a backdoor cut and get a layup. And at one time you led 29-22. And then Rhode Island came back and tied it at 30-30. And then a little-known backup center, a little-used backup center, Phil Hoagland. Can you describe that play for us? Well, Phil Hoagland, who wasn't even um, in the starting lineup until just moments before game time because Tony Budzinski had uh, a high fever. Willimantic guy. Yeah, uh, Willimantic guy, that's right. So uh, so coach inserted Phil Hoagland into the lineup, uh, and uh, nobody knew anything about him. So uh, he ends up scoring, I think, 14 points in that game, including the final bucket uh, that Snake Taylor had thrown uh, a, a Hail Mary pass to. Um, but I think Phil scored more points in that game than he had all season. I think you're right on that. And here, here's essentially a, a big guy who has the ball when UConn's been slowing things down. He's out beyond the free throw line. He puts the ball on the floor and attacks the rim. I still say you can make an argument it was an offensive foul, but they called a blocking foul. He missed the free throw, but UConn eventually won the game 35-32. to 32. Have you gotten, Did you have any hearing loss after that game, Doug? <laughs> oh, gosh, I, I'm sure I had. That's, in fact, someone described that as the most deafening sound in, uh, heard in the field house ever, uh, the noise that night. Uh, and I know I attended games when I was a kid, like, you know, 9, 10, 11, 12 years old in the field house, and it was, it was loud then, but uh, this was unprecedented. Yeah. Memorable 50 years later, I feel like it just happened yesterday. I'll give you two stories of mine about that, that when the game was over, Bob Stack, the leading scorer on the team, took one shot. He was essentially a decoy in that game, and it worked to perfection. He is being lifted by some UConn students as he cuts down the net, because you guys eventually would wind up tying for the conference championship. For years, maybe still now, in D. Rowe's office, there's a picture of that. And one of those students holding him up by the legs, his long-haired, shaggy hippie freak, is me. <laughs> I'm kind of proud of that little number there. And the other thing is that uh, I was working at the college station, WHUS, back then. I wasn't doing sports casting, but I did go along with our crew a lot of games, including my co-author, Bob Porter. And when the season was over, we took the season highlights and essentially made a collage of the season with narration done by Bob. And I did all the production work, the old days of razor blade and splice tape to put this thing together. We produced a 37-minute tape, and no, I don't know where it is now. And when we were done, we put on a cassette, and we walked it over to D. Rowe's house, knocked on the door and explained exactly what it was and all that. And that was essentially my first real contact with D, and it's been a friendship that's lasted for those 50 years since that time. Doug, let me wrap things up by explaining what 2020 was like for D and for you and for me and for many others. We had some tremendous interactions with Coach Rowe. We sure did. Um, you know, when, when March came and, and uh, our, world, our world changed um, with with it, um, we had to figure out some kind of way to stay connected uh, with the and, and like so many people, Wayne, uh, we discovered Zoom, you know, and, and as a way of staying connected. And uh, yeah, that was quite an experience for him because he would see people's 
spaces on the computer, uh, and that was his one way of staying connected. And we had Zoom sessions, as, as you know, Wayne, just about every night through April and May. And, um, you know, it was so easy to put together. It was just like adding water to a recipe when you contact someone and say, would you be interested in, in doing a Zoom session with Dave? And, and, and every instance, the response is, sure, when? You didn't want to have too many players or too many people on it at once because it might be a little overwhelming or confusing to him. And, and you told me that there were times when you would take a certain year's team, you had to use five of them one night and five of them the next. You couldn't put all ten or whatever it was on the same Zoom call. No, we couldn't, Wayne. We couldn't accommodate the number of people who wanted to reach out and connect with with, with Coach. Uh, and, and to put more than five up, we learned early on, would just be too overwhelming for everyone because people began talking over each other. But, uh, you know, I, hey, I, full disclosure here, I'm learning Zoom on the fly. I mean, I'm hitting buttons uh, just trying to figure this out. And I didn't even realize early on I was recording some of these sessions uh, it was unbeknownst to me, and then I just discovered when that possibility was there, I went back and realized I had been uh, recording him. So I have about 60 Zoom sessions <clears throat> that are stored in iCloud uh, that someday soon I hope I can put together some kind of collage like you did uh, with that 1970 season. I'd love to put something together as a, as a tribute to, to Coach. Well, don't look to me for that. That's not my technology uh, thing. A razor blade and splice tape with the old reel-to-reel tapes? Oh, yeah, I'm in, but nonetheless. I was tickled and very honored to be invited repeatedly to those Zooms, but then when the weather warmed up, Doug, then what did we do? Yeah, we went outdoors, Wayne. Uh, finally, when May came and warmer weather and longer uh, light days, uh, we had driveway visits. And we did it in a way that uh, maintained appropriate physical distance. And they were so much fun. We would just lay out chairs in the driveway, circle, uh, and, and kind of reminiscent of what people would do in, you know, days past, just hanging out in the driveway. And, uh, oh, gosh. So we continued those sessions uh, live, and they were so much fun. And, and you, were, you, were, you were a part of so many of them, you know, you and Joe D and, and Howie, and just so many people who, who stepped up. And, and, uh, and, and, you know, right to the end, Wayne, right, right to the end of, of, of Dean's life, he's still connecting people with other people who, you know, initially didn't know each other through these sessions. It was just, it's just incredible, just incredible what he, what he how, how many lives he touched uh, and in so many different ways. What a great point that is. And now when I got the news early yesterday afternoon that we no longer had D. Rowe, at least physically, trust me, he'll be there mentally forever for me. But uh, I spent some time doing something I don't do a lot of, and that's contemplating and meditating. I would just stand over like an open field and just think about the good days and think about these Zooms and the driveway meetings we had and think about the old days of the teams he had. And then after he coached and the interaction I continually had with him, we'd had great conversations over and over again. And I just wanted to just share those thoughts with you because one thing that I thought about yesterday was that frequently when somebody dies, people... I guess it's human nature, have a regret, and they go, oh, I wish I'd reached out. Oh, I wish I'd done more. With D. Rowe, 
I don't have that feeling because I feel like I really had the chance to connect with him in the final year of his life, give him some information, some positivity from my myself, and have him give the positivity back to me. And I know, Doug, since you organized all those meetings, you had to feel the same way. You could not have done more. Well, thanks, Wayne. I always feel like so many other people, you know, you owe so much to a guy like that that there's never enough time and never enough opportunities to give back. But uh, I think we did what we could uh, to try to provide some dignity uh, and some life uh, to his last months in a way that uh, he's lived his life his, his, his entire years uh, on this planet. So I'll tell you, I, just real quickly, too, you know, uh, I've reflected as well. And, and here's a guy, you know this. I'm not telling you anything you don't know or any, anything that anybody else doesn't know about about Coach is that he always looked for the best in others. He always tried to connect with the best in others and always drew that out in people. And even in the final months, you know, on uh, I recall somebody uh, on one of the Zoom sessions who knew quite well the relationship that Gino and, and, and Jim have uh, over the years, and, and they, you know, they tried to bait him on it. And uh, even in the final months, he takes the high road, and he just, he, he just praises both for what they've done for the University of Connecticut. Lastly, Doug, what have the last 20 or so hours been like for you? Have you had an outpouring of reaction primarily from the players, especially the ones who played with you and the ones who played for D. Yeah, you know, i tell you what people want to do, uh, Wayne, is people are reaching out and saying, can we continue these Zoom sessions? They want to just process uh, what they're feeling with each other. And so, yes, there has been an outpouring. Uh, and, 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 and we want to make sure that this remains a celebration of his life, and it's so difficult to do right now under these conditions, as you well know. And, and in due time, I, there will be an opportunity to celebrate his life uh, when it's safer to do, when it's more appropriate. Uh, but right now, people clearly reaching out, as you would expect, and uh, people want to be with each other to share how they feel. And we're going to continue to do these Zoom sessions if that's what they want. So I'm in. D. Rowe, one of the most special people I've met in my life. And, Doug, thank you for sharing your thoughts to just further confirm the fact that D. Rowe is one of a kind. He's a one of a kind, and all the stories you've ever heard about him or anyone else, they're all true, Wayne. He's one of a kind, and I thank you, Wayne, for being such an active participant, especially over these last 10 months, and keeping him alive as well. So thank you. My honor, my pleasure. Doug, good to catch up with you again. Thanks for joining me today. You bet. Take care. Doug Melody, who played on D. Rose's first team at the University of Connecticut.